Hey, welcome to On the Wing with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. It's a day to break big news. It is the day for the 2018 Pheasants Forever Pheasant Hunting Forecast. We're joined by Tom Carpenter, the brand new editor of the Pheasants Forever Journal, and Jared Wickland, the public relations manager. Between the two of them, we will go state by state and look at what the pheasant hunting prospects are for this upcoming pheasant season. All right, welcome to On the Wing, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's podcast. We are in world headquarters <laughs> That nondescript industrial park in White Bear Lake where, um, where we all gather every, every morning at 8 a.m. Um, and today is a very special day because it is the day we release the number one um, piece of content over the course of the year. It is the pheasant hunting forecast. This has been true for, for years, well, a decade anyways, where the number one thing that people look for from our site is where they want to go hunting this fall. And uh, Anthony and I are here to break it down with the two guys that put it together, uh, our brand new Pheasants Forever Journal editor, Tom Carpenter, and our public relations manager, the man behind all of us so to speak, Jared Wickland. Welcome, guys. Welcome to the On the Wing podcast. Thanks. It's our first trip to the podcast. <laughs> Just down the hall. Yeah. This, this is exciting. <laughs> I'm sitting here sweating right now. No, I'll, I'll be all right. <laughs> well, let's start. Um, the, the big news. So, well, before we get into the big news of the forecast, uh, Pheasants Forever, since 1982, has only had two editors two and 30 well I get my numbers correct here 36 year history of the organization dennis anderson was the first editor and then mark herwig was the editor of the pheasants forever journal and the quail forever journal um for the last 20 years and then numero trace we just call him trace in the in call the me, department call me trey um we actually don't. We just call him Carp. <laughs> yep. Nobody refers to him as Tom. They just refer to him as Carp for his last name, Tom Carpenter. And, and to prove that, I, early on in my tenure here, we, I was coming to a meet. I was supposed to be in a meeting, and somebody said, or Bob said, where's, where's Tom? And they, well, Bob didn't know that my name was Carp. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, everyone was wondering like who are you talking about yeah. that, that's, that's we don't point. have like, a tom in no, our department we don't, we don't have a tom Who, who's tom that's the story. <clears throat> we have we have the sky carp uh <laughs> all right so so number three editor number three tom carpenter introduce yourself to our audience tell us in podcast time your life story well i uh I grew up in southern Wisconsin, southwestern Wisconsin, and um, I've been a Minnesotan for a long time, but when I came out to Minnesota, I sort of became a South Dakotan and a Nebraskan as well um, because I was that much closer to the big wide open, and uh, I've actually been, a, I, I, about the time that Pheasants Forever started, I started outdoor writing. 
Um, and I did that for many years on a freelance basis as I went through my career, some of it in the outdoor industry, uh, in the communication side, and some of it not. But uh, I got the opportunity this year to uh, start as the editor at Pheasants Forever, and it's been a whirlwind, and uh, I'm a couple issues into the magazine, and um, this is my second uh, pheasant hunting forecast. So, uh, But I have been a pheasant hunter since, um, as I wrote in one of the stories I recently um, put in one of the issues, um, I shot my first pheasant in 1974. <laughs> in southwestern Wisconsin, and it was a wild rooster just west of west of my house along the railroad tracks. And um, I've been hunting pheasants ever since. Was that first rooster over a Brittany? That was over a Basset Hound. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't have guessed nice. that. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, I grew up with Basset Hounds, and uh, Basset Hounds make surprisingly good pheasant dogs. They're coming they're, from the editor of Pheasants Forever Journal yes. right there, folks. I've changed I've changed my dog breed a little bit, but um they were surprisingly good pheasant dogs. They're slow, they're pesky, the the birds don't run. We had a lot there's still wild birds down there. There was there was a lot more then. Um but the hunting's still good down there. Uh, thanks to a lot of what Pheasants Forever and, and private landowners are doing. But uh, the only problem with a basset hound is when they cross a rabbit, they all take the rabbit over the pheasant. It's kind of like Jared. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I, you're, when did you become a Brittany guy? I became a Brittany guy in the early 2000s. Okay. Um, I, I have a good friend, Ben O'Williams, which a lot of people will recognize. A lot of people will recognize that name. Um, and my first Brittany was out of his house of Britney's uh, out in Montana and that w that's what sort of started me on Britney's hmm. and um, I've been through several and and I'm currently just starting out with a little French Britney you uh, got to say it in the real term for us Epignol Breton oh very nicely done well and here's a nugget uh, Ben O. Williams probably his most famous book is called Winston right yep, yep. and uh, a guy I know wrote the foreword to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wrote that for Ben. I've hunted hunts with him for many years, and uh, it's just, I, I'd call it delightful, a delightful experience to be out here, there with him and his Britneys. One thing about Ben, though, is he's not a big pheasant lover. Uh, he, oh, he's made that quite clear yeah. over the years. And why is that? Because they're such runners and rogues, and they don't they don't act like gentlemen, which uh, which Ben likes yeah. with his with his beloved Huns. But his his Britneys are big big runners. Mm -hmm. They have to be out out where he hunts. Uh, you know, and uh, he lives in Livingston and in the flanks of the Crazies and the Absaroka Mountains. That country's big, and so uh, I had a little time when I had some Ben Williams Britneys trying to get them to run a little a little smaller, because um, <laughs> they're big dogs too. Um, so, but yeah, I'm I'm on to a little a little bitty Epignol Breton now. So your um, lark, your Epignol Breton is. Ten weeks old? No, it's older than that. She's five months. Five months now. Yep. Yep. Wow, ten weeks. I don't know where I got <laughs> that, but five five months old. Is it too early for you to tell any differences between the American Brittany and the French Brittany? She seems like a more of a natural close worker. Hmm. Um, I was like my Brittany's very close anyway. A lot of people would disagree with me, but hunting the types of places I do, I've always had my Brittany's work within flushing range. And um, she is seems to be naturally close. I, I, I've had her out already a fair amount. Uh, 
hunting, hunting chickens in Kansas. Um, I work some grasslands in Western Minnesota this weekend and I keep her on about a 60 foot check cord and she's pretty natural Mm -hmm. with it. Every once in a while I'll I'll untie it from me and she'll stick, she'll stick in that range. So they are a little closer working. They're smaller. I think she's only going to be about 28 to 30 pounds. And, and you, um, you wrote about your veteran, Brittany, a fair amount last fall during the hunting season. Rascal, for folks that have read blogs about Rascal, give us a little update on how Rascal's doing as we head into the 2018 hunting season. Well, I have some good hopes that she'll uh, be able to hunt this year. She's showing every indication. She's 14 14 years old, ladies and gentlemen. 14. She'll be in her 15th season uh, this year. And um, I counted it up the other day. She pointed eight wild roosters last year that we killed over her. And uh, three of those were out of a friend of ours in South Dakota when Jared and I were out on a media Spectacular hunt. Spectacular hunt. I know we did, a, we did a movie on that, too, that's still probably going to be coming out here yep. about uh, old dogs hunting. But, but we had, a, uh, we had a, a special little, I'd call it a kitchen pass from the landowner. And um, he, <laughs> he sent us across the road to a spot that doesn't get hunted very much. And Rascal has a lot of friends in a lot of places. And uh, <laughs> she had a friend that day. and <laughs> She's like the Garth Brooks of the pheasant world well (laughs) she is anthony has a term called when he takes his dogs on a little walk called a toodle and uh jared and i took rascal on a little toodle and every once in a while she'd slam on a point and point a rooster and i think that the the unique thing about rascal and, and not only how old she is is but when we went on that hunt together and you see her you see her catch that pheasant scent and it just automatically that's she gets that step, yep. you know, uh, back into her stride, and it and it's fun to watch. What what's what's fourteen and what what's that in dog years? Well, it's a years? multiplier of seven, right? So ninety eight years old. Whew. I hope I'm hunting pheasants when I'm ninety eight. No kidding. Yeah, she she does Jake's an excellent shaking job. It. Jake, our producer, he, he chimes <laughs> in only in certain moments. He's, uh, he's shaking his head. No way. Oh, uh, I'll be I'll be out there at ninety eight. But Anthony and I are going to try and get her out on some birds and get maybe it, get it, try and get it on film this year. So, uh, Lord willing, she holds on for a few more months here. She seems to be, now that the weather's getting cooler, she's perking up. She does not like, never has liked hot weather. So she's smart though, too, is when the, when the bird goes down, she'll go over and grab it and she'll hold it there and she'll make her younger owner come over and grab <laughs> yes. it, grab it from her, which is smart when you're 98. <laughs> well, I, I'll say though, she's always been that way. She's never, she scratched retrieving out of her contract early on, <laughs> <laughs> but she does find and point and stay. So we have an, we have an arrangement. She does an excellent job and it's worked out. So, uh, so that, that is Tom Carpenter folks, uh, the editor of our journal, uh, post a ton of content. If folks want to drop you a line, chapter members, volunteers, members, they want to introduce themselves, maybe pitch you a story here or there. How do they reach you, Tom? Yep, love to hear from you. I'm T Carpenter, T-C-A-R-P-E-N-T-E-R at pheasantsforever.org. And refer to you as CARP, and then you'll know that uh, you're a friendly voice. Yep, <laughs> CARP. If you say CARP, you're automatically in good good graces. <laughs> And uh, a lot of folks have talked to the other voice, Jared Wicklin. You've heard him uh, a few moments uh, already in the podcast. Uh, normally, call into Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever's headquarters, and you'll get the front desk. And then if 
it's a little bit more complicated than that. It go, gets directed to Jared Wickley. Send it up to the big guns over <laughs> the PR department. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So Jared, Jared has been with the organization for, gosh, it's almost 10 years now. And you've held, you started as an intern. Yep. I think you've, you've, you've done just about every job in this organization. You've been a field rep. Um, you handle a ton of customer service, public relations, press releases. So you you know a lot about a lot of things because you're writing about it a lot. Um, give our listeners a little bit of uh, your life story in, in, in a few minutes. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate, uh, appreciate Bob and Anthony allowing me to come on the podcast today and, and, and talk a little bit about the bird forecast coming up. But uh, my name is Jared Wicklin, and I was uh, born and raised in Duluth, Minnesota on the shores of Lake Superior. And uh, my parents and family have since moved from there, but uh, I've still got my in-laws that live just uh, north of Brighton Beach. I think a lot of people know that point. If you're traveling up to traveling up to Canada or traveling up to Grand Marais, you, you kind of know where it is, right on the north side of Duluth. But uh, still get up there quite a bit. Um, grew up grew up a, a grouse hunter. Um, grew up a grouse hunter. I didn't have a bird dog growing up. I had a Siberian husky, uh, who was a sled sled dog by trade. Um, which was pretty cool. Didn't, didn't do much hunting, hated water, wanted nothing to do with it, but, uh, Grew up, grew up with a dog nonetheless. and So are we going to have to do a Basset Hound Siberian Husky yeah, podcast see, with, <laughs> with the two, two yeah. of you guys? Yeah. He, you know what? I never, I, never got him, I never got him out on the grouse trail. Maybe he would have. He, kill, he killed a lot of squirrels in our yard, so I guess that, that probably counts. No, but. it doesn't. But go, go ahead. <laughs> so I, I, grew up, uh, I grew up grouse hunting and uh, deer hunting in the Superior National Forest. Our, our family um, actually – Funny side story. Somebody forgot to pay the lease on a on a very small one of the last leases that was left in St. Louis County, Minnesota, in the middle of the national forest, and they were just told. I, I just heard the other day from our family that they had to give up a lease on our hunting shack that had been up there in that family for the last seventy years. They, actually, they actually have to burn it burn it down. So that's uh, kind of a sour note there. But uh, I I grew up in the North Woods and uh, really enjoyed that. I didn't actually start hunting pheasants. Until I moved down to Luther College, where I went to school. That's in Northeast Iowa. Um, anybody that's been to Decorah or, or been in kind of that driftless region knows what a gem it is as far as outdoor opportunities goes. Um, it, they do have some grouse down there, not very many. I, I heard one drumming at some point in a rough grouse management area. I used to hunt down there, but um, you know, pheasant and that was Anthony with a chainsaw, <laughs> yeah. uh. just trying to pull 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 the wool over my eyes. Um, you know, grouse and pheasant, uh, the trout fishing is spectacular. Turkey hunting, uh, renowned for their deer hunting opportunities. Waterfall there as well. Um, so that's kind of where I got my start pheasant hunting. And, and we did it just, uh, you know, three, three, four of my buddies at a time walking a line through, through CRP and some of the public lands uh, that they have up there. There's this big area. Um, you know, if you're from that driftless region, you've probably heard of Coon Creek before. Um, it's a very large, expansive, I think it's upwards of 10,000 acres now. Um, but it just has everything under the sun. And, and that's kind of where I got my pheasant hunting started. I was, I was my own bird dog. Uh, at that point. So I'd, I'd, you know, we'd be shooting roosters and running over to them quick, trying to grab them before uh, they went in any which direction. But, uh, you know, after college, I, I moved, moved up to Alaska. I was up there for a stint, kind of working as a wilderness guide for a nonprofit. Um, loved it up there. Uh, almost, almost moved up there at one point. Um, it's just, uh, it, it really is kind of like the land before time up there. Everything is just so wild. 
Um, and that's where it really started getting in uh, to the outdoors and salmon fishing and things up there. And uh, when I moved back, uh, I did a few side jobs for a short stint, but then became a public relations intern uh, with no other than Bob and Anthony, who are sitting at the table here with me. And that's that's kind of how I got my start. And um, I applied applied for a position as a as a regional rep. Uh, I you know try to think of myself as jack of all trades, master of none. I do a lot of different things for the organization, but. They gave me a chance and, you know, went down to Iowa, did a lot of pheasant hunting. I got my first dog, uh, Coda, uh, who was a black lab. Unfortunately, uh, we all know the story there. She just passed away about two months ago uh, from a tumor on her spleen. Uh, was sort of a bad deal, but uh, we're looking at getting another puppy here in December. I also have a uh, English pointer right now named Jackson. Um, who is uh, uh, just a bird hunting freak. <laughs> a lot of people have seen him. He's coming out in the new pheasant book that uh, we're going to be unveiling here pretty soon at Pheasants Forever. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's it's just been kind of a fairy tale for me. I've always been engrossed in conservation. Um, you know, my major in, in college uh, was uh, environmental studies and exercise science. I want, you know, I wanted to be kind of going to the cardiology. We've got a lot of heart problems in my family and my, my dad is kind of the, the center of that, but he's the one that taught me to hunt and fish and, uh, we still do it to this day. In fact, he's, he's down in Tucson, Arizona right now, just counting the days he's coming back for a month and a half, uh, to hunt the entire time he's here for grouse, uh, and for deer. And we're going to do a little woodcock hunting and, um, it's just a, a spectacular thing. So I, my, my dad's my best friend and, and that's how I, that's how I grew up hunting. So that's that's the story of Jared Wicklin, also known as Bunt Cake around the <laughs> office, also known as the Jack Pine Savage from Duluth, Minnesota. There yes. you go. Yeah, we have uh, we have carp and Bunt Cake on the show, <laughs> uh, and you dropped a little bit of a nugget. There is indeed a uh, pheasant dogs book coming out. Uh, it's not Pheasants Forever's book, just to be clear. It's a mm-hmm. uh, it's a book written by Keith Crowley. Uh, uh, Pheasants Forever member from Hudson, Wisconsin, and being published by Wild River Press, and that'll be hitting bookshelves in late October, I believe. So look for that. It's It, it includes a whole bunch of Pheasants Forever members and, and um, fellow co-workers here in the office. So I believe, um, there, I believe there's going to be an ad for it in the winter issue as I well. I think there was one in the super issue even. Yep, yeah. yep. And um, there's actually going to be a story in the winter issue about pheasant hunting literature and some of the books about pheasant hunting that are out there, both old and new. So, and I think it's a, so, so you members can find it there too, too, as well as you want to order it. Well, since we got you on, give us a little <laughs> bit more of a tease about what's coming up in the winter issue, Carp. Well, the winter issue, we're doing some special reports. Um, we got some real interesting ones. One is, you know, we all know in this day and age that we need more hunters. We have about half the hunters we've had since we, that we had on that day in 1974 when I shot my first rooster. Mm-hmm. Um, and coupled with population growth in this country, uh, we're now at only about 5% of the population that's hunting. And as hunters, we all sort of, maybe in the core of our hearts, we think, boy, less competition on my public lands and more birds for me. But when you really look at the big picture, we all know what the case is, is that you need, we need hunters. Hunters are the country's top primary uh, core conservationists, and we all need to be working 
at getting more hunters. So we have a couple features, uh, special report features on just that. One is going to be a big feature. It's going to feature six new faces of hunting, and it's six examples of hunters that were either are new to hunting or came back to hunting or uh, they were retained in hunting hmm. that we're, we're going to leave. And, and it's sort of, uh, I think a lot of us can, will be able to see people in that story that we know, and then maybe we can do something to get hunters back in the fold. Um, so that's sort of a human interest special report. Um, another is hunting for hunters. Um, that's going to be by Andrew McKean, the uh, former editor of Outdoor Life, who's been doing uh who also works with Powderhook Communications, he, uh, he's doing a good report on on sort of the numbers but behind the success we're having and the success we're not having as a hunting community in getting hunters back into the fold. Um, I'm doing a special report on pollinators and precision agriculture, specifically talking about a farmer in northern Iowa who is doing it um, and uh, making some magnificent little pockets of habitat uh, on his land related to precision agriculture, i.e. spots that aren't productive to farm and spots that aren't productive for today's huge implements. They're corners of the fields that just didn't quite work with today's huge tractors and, and 16 rows and 12 row uh, utilities and, and everything. So he's got a lot of habitat corners and it's all pollinator habitat, which is we'll also discuss a little later in the podcast mm -hmm. is also game bird habitat. So that's just a little flavor of what's coming up in winter along with uh, some, some fun stuff too about late season roosters and some of the tricks they play on us. Um, as well as I talked about some pheasant hunting literature uh, and, and just a couple good stories as well. So I think it's going to be some good how-to reading, some good informational reading, and some good fireside reading as well. Well, and not to sound like an advertisement right in the middle of the podcast, if you're not currently a member and, you, you know, the the winter issue sounds appealing to you, to you or you just simply want to start giving back, get connected to the organization and make sure that we do have um, wild birds out there to chase going forward. Look us up at pheasantsforever.org. There's always some sort of promotion going on to get you hooked. I, again, or, you know, quailforever.org if, uh, if you're in the uh, quail country. Whatever bird you care about, get involved. Uh, join. If you're not happy with the forecast, well, <laughs> get involved and do something about it to help us. Well, I'll tell you what, too, is even if you're not a pheasant or a quail hunter, I mean, what Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is doing is helping a lot of other game birds and wildlife, too. I just came back from Kansas. We're hunting Pheasants Forever properties for prairie chickens. Yeah. And uh, it's not just pheasants and quail. It's all grassland and prairie wildlife. All right. Time to move to the A topic. But before we get into the state-by-state state and breakdown, uh, Jared, you've been on a couple of ride-alongs, August roadside surveys with, I believe you went with the Iowa DNR, you went with the Minnesota DNR, you, mm -hmm. you've been a part of some of these. Give us a, a preview or an overview of how state agencies do their, their uh, forecasting when it comes to pheasants and when it comes to quail. Yeah, no problem. So... 
I think one thing to point out is that there, there's a few state agencies out there um, that also do spring crowing counts, where they go out and count the number, or they count the number of rooster crows crows that they hear. Um, but by and large, uh, the most accurate count you can do is August roadside counts. Um, you know, whether it's uh, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, um, Kansas, Nebraska does their July uh, rural mail carrier route. Um, Iowa, Illinois, um, they, for the most part, most of them do the August roadside. Count, and the roadsides are more accurate than the spring because? Um, just because you, it's it's a estimate of of population abundance. Right. Yeah, you get the um, broods, right? If yep. you're doing the spring counts, you just get adult carryover, and yep. it doesn't take anything into account for the spring reproduction. And I think that's an important note, you know, before we explain what the August roadside count is, is you need to understand that whether it's pheasants or quail or any other birds, or they, they look at different species when they're on the roadside count. Mm-hmm. Deer, rabbits get counted, things like that, and it's all included uh, in, in different state reports. But pheasants are extremely hard to detect, uh, and thus getting accurate estimates of true population size is very hard. Um, and people need to understand that. So instead, we rely on the roadside surveys, and it's not really—it's not a population estimate. You know, I hear a lot of people say, "Well, the po- population is population is up, or the population is down, or it shows that the population is going one way or another." It's an index of relative abundance for a certain region or a certain area, rather than a true population estimate. Um, I think the only one, maybe Anthony, you might know a little bit more about this. That South Dakota, I think, is maybe the only one that tries to give a shot at their population, actual population number. Um, And I know that's been all over the board the last 10 years, just on habitat abundance and things like, do you remember what, do you remember, have you seen what they're at this year? Have they put out a number for actual? Uh, They, South Dakota does do that to answer your question. And I I haven't seen, um, seen it for this year on the table in front of me, but so like last year, um, their preseason population was 4.6 million pheasants. It's a lot of birds. It's a lot of birds. And then if you um, if you uh, just kind of do some Minnesota math here, uh, <laughs> and and what, what what were they up? 47. South Dakota was up. 47, 47 percent um, was their um, increase in abundance. And, and so you you do that math, and so uh, 6.7 million mm-hmm. looks like that should be the you know. And if you that that's rough, I mean that's kind of rough math. I don't know if that's exact, but it's it's probably not too far off. And if you dial it back, <clears throat> you know, oh seven ish when CRP was at a high point in South Dakota and they harvested a sixty year high in birds. I think they estimated about thirteen million Look, pheasants in the population of South Dakota. Twelve million, about it, yeah. It, it seemed like thirteen it, at that <laughs> point. At that, at that's, that point, yeah. that's a big that point. big number for the nog. But to take it, in. you, you think matter. about you know, and they now they're down. Um, to just shy of a million acres of habitat. I mean, it's a real clear line between how much habitat you have on the ground and how many birds are in the population to what your opportunities uh, are in the bag. Of course, one thing that, uh, you know, I always, um, I think it's fair to point out what a, what a roadside count isn't. And it's not just a tool used to sell licenses. I think we hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, oh, you know, they're just uh, they're just putting these numbers out to sell licenses. And um, I, I put that that up there. It's like people that don't think the moon landing was real. I think it's just <laughs> it's just <laughs> insulting to like all these wildlife professionals that. I mean, when you pour over these reports and look at like 
the statistical models and the trends. I mean, they put 25 and 50 page reports together for all regions. There, I mean, for these major pheasant states like uh, the Dakotas, Minnesota, Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, <laughs> and they're very, very detailed reports. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of science and analysis that goes into them, and they take a long time to crunch these numbers and come out. And I think it just kind of is insults. I, I think it's just insulting to that community that puts these together to just think that they're. I mean, you know, you can look at South Dakota last year. They said it was down forty something percent or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's you know, I look at these numbers. There's every state over my you know tenure here in in a decade and a half has been has reported the dips mm-hmm. and they've reported the increases. So. Um, I, I don't really know why people hold on to that. You know, it, it kind of baffles me. But, uh, you know, they obviously want people to come and hunt their state. But they also, um, they're, they're not going to, uh, they would probably do more damage long term to lie. And, and, and I think they're just reporting facts. That's what it is. These are factual numbers. Um, and, and, and then there's some, you know, when you dive deeper into the details, of course, there's variation by region. You know, just because they say, I mean, that's the thing, just because they say it's up 46% in South Dakota, it's not a guarantee that you'll get your birds, but right. um, that that's where hunting comes in. And that's, that's kind of an imperfect, imperfect deal, but they're rant over. No, that, <laughs> it's an important, uh, I'll, I'll add one little tick to the rant. And that is some of these surveys have been done year after year for decades, three mm-hmm. to four decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's what Jared hit at. It's, it's an, it's, it's an index. It's a comparison. You Iowa's can, been going for over 60 years yeah, now. 60 I don't know about, I forget Iowa. what Minnesota's at, but I mean, yeah, it's, I don't know Minnesota's for sure. I know Wisconsin is long, long, long term with mail carriers. I think since, well, the, he, I got, I saw, I got the South Dakota sheet in front of me. Cause obviously okay. we're probably going to talk about that a fair amount, but their first, uh, their first statistics for ringneck pheasants date back to 1919, mm-hmm. the, the year of the first pheasant hunt. Yep. Incidentally, which it's the hundred year anniversary, and you know South Dakota they do 110 30 mile routes. You know, you make the comment about you know how much time and energy is put into analyzing it. Just think about that 110. 30 mile routes um, to measure year after year after year. And, you know, the point of the forecast isn't to send you in one state or the other. You know, it is a a litmus test for measuring how the habitat is doing in the state, you know, what the weather conditions were like, and just uh, have a just one more mile marker on how things are going out there. Um, Yeah. The other piece that I want to just touch base with for a moment on, Mm -hmm. um, on the roadside survey you know, you mentioned it's it's in imperfect science. Um, what are the conditions that you're hoping ha- takes place to actually see birds on a survey? Mm-hmm. So a lot of these times they call them August roadside counts. A lot of the states do because they want to do them at a time when broods are old enough um, that they're going to be coming out of the cover. And, and they do it in August because when you have low relative humidity on a clear day is what they're really looking for um, on a you know, crisp, crisp autumn morning, those birds are going to be coming out to the roadsides to dry off because that grass is all wet. They want to, they want to dry themselves off. And it happens in the first hour, hour and a half of the day, uh, as the sun's coming up. So, um, you know, uh, clear and crisp outside, no wind. And as you're driving down the road, if you can see the, if you can see the roadsides glistening with dew, you know, you know, you've got a good day. Um, if it's high humidity, 
uh, that day or there's big winds and it dries it off real quick, chances are you're not going to see what you normally would see on those particular routes. So the routes in a lot of these different states haven't changed over time. Uh, they try to keep them consistent in order to keep numbers consistent on the actual roadside count portion of right. it. But one thing I'll throw in there is that we know that any one survey in any one year is not particularly reliable. Um, you can run the same route multiple times in the same week, and you can get different numbers of broods. So um, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag to the specific county that I'm, I'm <laughs> going to talk about here, but um, Carp and I had a conversation back when they were doing roadside counts, and we had a couple volunteers that he had reached out to um, kind of uh, towards southwest Minnesota, that portion of the state. And they ran the same count twice, all right? One day it wasn't very good conditions, and they put up a goose egg for the amount of birds. So no birds, okay. No birds on the side of the road. They go, what was it, Carp, three, four days later? Uh, about a week later. About a week later, perfect conditions, nice and dewy outside, going next to some nice wildlife management areas and some private lands where we've got CRP. They, I think you told me they counted over... 109 birds. 109. So Zero <laughs> to 109, the and exact same route one week later. And, and yep. that, that's, you know, that comes back to what Jared says. It's, it's all about the conditions. Mm. And it also ties back to the effort we've all been talking about that they put in. Like, they don't just run these transects once. They, they run them a couple times to try and get the ideal conditions. Mm -hmm. um, so there's even more than just one run of every transect in these states. It Exactly. And that's, and that's why we say like, we can do the same run multiple times in the same week and get different numbers, but it's only when we scale up across a region or through time to get a good picture of what's going on. So overall, the trend in, in roadside surveys, and I don't care if it's Minnesota or Iowa or South Dakota, wherever it may be, it matches up extremely well with what's happened on the landscape. So mm. example of that would be uh, habitat losses, habitat losses and gains. And I think this last year, um, you know, just talking like Minnesota, they specifically had some, they, they got some grassland back. I mean, obviously we're facing some, some CRP conservation reserve program contract expirations coming up here, uh, at the end of September, which is, is going to put a dent in, in some of the grassland around here. And we're hoping maybe a new farm bill, uh, is, is gonna, gonna help deter some of that. But, um, you know, it, it really, it really matches up well as things ebb and flow as habitat ebbs and flows. So has, um, pheasant population. So, uh, just a really quick example. Um, Minnesota right now is sitting at 1.1 million acres of CRP back in 2007, 2008. I think when we almost, we got pretty, pretty close to three quarters of a million roosters shot in this state, they had 1.8 million acres. Hmm. Same goes for South Dakota. Right now, they actually they actually went to tick up a little bit. They're at uh, 1.1 million acres as well. Uh, they were up at that 1.5 to 1.8 million acres back in 2008, 2007, 2008, when they shot 2 million roosters that year. I mean, that that's just a lot of birds, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, using, using a, a phrase that I like to use that Anthony coined back in the day is that pheasants are a very colorful barometer of environmental health. When we have a lot of pheasants on the landscape, we, knew, we know that we're no, doing not just good things for upland birds, but for pollinators, for water quality, for, for deer and turkey, for songbirds, right? So um, 
so that's that's just kind of an overview of August roadside surveys uh, and and basically how they work. They're they're very simple, and I really encourage anybody that you know is interested. If you got a lot of habitat around your house, um, you guys hear me talk all the time. I, I I take a lot of flack in the office for oh Jared's gonna go home. He's working on his food plot this afternoon, or he's working on you know maybe doing his own little personal burn in his backyard. Well, those things have helped, and we've got pheasants around my property north of the office here, and on my little roadside counts that I do around <laughs> around my own house. I've seen the most birds I've seen in, since I've moved in uh, to our house, which was in 2014. So I'm pretty floored for the uh, for what's, the season. What's your and, address again? Jared? Yeah, yeah, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, but I really encourage people if you're looking at doing your own roadside count, go out. They they normally in Minnesota, anyways, and, and a lot of the other states, they normally start at six o'clock, uh, and you have one one hour to complete them. They're usually 25 mile or 30 a.m. Mi- 30 mile, yeah. 25 mile or 30 mile transects. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a little tip there too. I mean, it's sort of a hunting tip and we're beyond we're beyond the, the timing this year, but if you're itching at the end of summer to get ready for upland bird season, why not get up at the crack of dawn a couple mornings, go out to places you might like to hunt and do your own little count. Mm-hmm. You see a brood out there, chances are they're going to be in the area come October. And, you know, going going back to what Anthony pointed out earlier, you know, a lot of people come out and say, oh, it's a way to sell licenses or this and that. Um, you know, it, it, it really there really is some biology involved. Um, these are professionals doing these counts. Um, you know, I think maybe... You go to some place like Nebraska where it's the the mail carrier survey. That's a little. That's probably a little bit different because I don't know if every single one of them is specifically looking like you know I'm I'm going a mile down the road to deliver the mail here, yeah. but I'm going to see if there's a pheasant on the route. So I think uh, it it depends on the state and it really depends on the region and how much habitat is there. But August roadside surveys. Um, are fairly accurate as it relates to relative I, abundance. I never trust anyone whose steering wheel is on the opposite side of mine. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, they're they're um, they're there for a purpose, and they've been standardized over many years now. Uh, whatever state you want to pick, um, yeah. and they they give us kind of a clearer picture of what's happening with pheasant or quail. Um, and they, like I said, they do, they do deer and turkey and morning dove, um, mark, mark down all those other things as well. So we've referred to, um, <clears throat> you know, 07, 08, a number of different times already. And the reason folks that we've referred to 2007, 2008, um, those were 40, 60 year high bird numbers, harvest numbers. Those were the good old days of this generation, right? Just, mm-hmm. just 10 years ago. And. It, the reason being is CRP in that time frame had a cap, acre cap, of around 39 million acres, mm-hmm. right? The 2014 Farm Bill brought that CRP acre cap down to 24 million acres. That 15 million acre loss of CRP um, has led to a subsequent decline in pheasant numbers, quail numbers, pollinators, monarchs. So, you know, as recently, you know, for, for a guy like Jared, who's 34? 32. 32. I might look older, though. <laughs> 32. You can, you can reach back and say 2007, that was, that was epic, mm-hmm. right? And we had epic bird numbers so recently, and it, it's 
so directly connected to those CRP numbers. So hopefully we get some good news out of a farm bill here shortly. We know uh, we know we've been fighting for 40 million acres. We know that might be um, a bit of a long shot, but nevertheless, we're going to keep driving because it, absolutely without uh, without um, any confusion, there is a direct link between the number of CRP acres and the birds out there on, a, on the yeah. landscape. Cadillac of pheasant habitat. So we've talked a bit about habitat. Um, Jared, before we get into the actual forecast, let's, uh, let's give an overview of the other big component of what makes birds out there. So habitat's the number mm-hmm. one thing. That's under our control as humans. Um, the other thing that's really not is weather. Yep. What was what was the weather um, conditions for this year? Um, you know, weather conditions were kind of all over the board. We're coming off of last year uh, where a lot of people witnessed the drop uh, in, in pheasant numbers. And to some degree, they haven't caught up in some of the states. But um, areas of South Dakota and North Dakota just got hammered last year by that drought. I think it was probably one of the most talked about things uh, in the upland bird hunting world. Um, and I think North Dakota to a degree has, has been feeling some of that, especially for their pheasant population. When you look at, we'll go over it in the forecast Mm -hmm. too, but that, that drought really, really affected them last year, South Dakota to some degree, but they bounced back, uh, with some, with some nice weather, but, um, you know, winter, winter snowstorms, specifically late winter snowstorms with really heavy snow can have a huge impact on, on pheasant populations. You know, for the most part, people say like, you know, we need to plant more food plots. We need to plant more food plots. Um, there's a lot of biologists out there that, that, that won't agree with that. And I've talked, talked to a lot of them in, in quite a few different states where the amount of, you know, corn and soybean, uh, milo, sunflowers, those types of things, the amount of, um, grain, uh, residual waste grain that's on the landscape. That's on the landscape is more than enough to carry most birds through the winter. Do food plots help? Yes. But I think in a lot of cases, some people look at that too and say, well, it, it, you know, especially why don't we do it more on public property? And I've answered that question a lot lately where, um, if managers are putting food plots on public property, most of them are going to be three to five to maybe up to 10 acres or more. Um, just because then you can make it a shooting gallery if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times, you know, being able to make a, a bigger, a bigger food plot that's going to sustain all wildlife, not just pheasants, but deer and turkeys and everything else, uh, goes into that. But for the most part, um, as, as long as there's some food available, which in, you know, in the Midwest, Great Plains region, there's, there's enough crops out there that they can get through the winter just fine. And, um, you know, some people look at it as a, as the chicken or the egg, right? Would you rather have, would you rather have an easy winter and just a horrible spring uh, and and summer brood conditions, or would you would you rather have a horrible winter and and really great spring conditions for raising broods? And I think a lot of people look at that in different ways. Um, you know, for me personally, um, I would say that having having an easy having an easy spring, you, you've got basically one shot. Uh, you know, kind of April through July um, to to get a nest down, wait 25 days, hatch that brood. And then you've got, you know, that 10 to 14 day window where they got to stay warm and they've got to stay dry. And that's up to the hen. So if you don't have great spring weather, um, you know, having, having, hatching a successful brood is hard. Um, so you can look at that a couple different ways, but, uh, late, late spring snowstorms and, and, uh, large amounts of snow in general, uh, and then rain and, uh, 
you know, to go with this, I'll, I'll just kind of give you an example in the state, in the state of Iowa, since I used to work there for five years, I kind of, kind of use that as, as my go-to for statistics. Um, you know, pheasants, when there's mild winters and warm, dry springs, they increase. And when there's snowy winters and cool, wet springs, they decrease. Um, and in the last 60 years of roadside counts, if they've been over 31 inches of snow for the entire winter, there has not been an increase in roadside counts when it's over 31 inches of snow. Um, and then, you know, you look at April through May in the prime, prime nesting season, eight inches of rain is kind of their benchmark. Um, and the northern half of the state, you kind of saw that this year. We still had some increases, but kind of that, that uh, pretty renowned region of northwest Iowa um, where they had just a ton of rain. Um, they didn't quite have an, an increase there that they wanted to see. So um, rain and snow make a huge impact uh, on different things. And then, um, you know, kind of going, going down the list, we look at it as, you know, habitat, nesting conditions, and CRP. And we talked about some of those numbers. Um, you know, North Dakota right now sits at 1.3 million acres. That's less than I mean, they've reduced by over 50%, mm -hmm. over 50%. They were like 3.2 million acres back in, in 2007. Um, so you know, people talk about bird populations and what's happened in North Dakota. Well, <laughs> a, a, a million, a million two or a million, what would be a million eight, that's a lot of grassland to be lost. Um, Iowa sitting at 1.8 million right now. South Dakota, 1.1 million acres. Uh, Kansas is still at 2 million acres. And we, we know from history that Kansas can be a great producer of pheasants and quail, given that they still have that habitat base. Um, but the other thing to look at, too, is, is the diversity um, of, of the structure of habitat that's out there in the landscape right now. And one thing I really wanted to point out was pollinators. And I, I use Iowa as that example because they just got so much rain in their northern range this year, but they still had some increases in that northern range as well. And part of me wants to say, maybe it has to do, uh, maybe it has to do with the quality habitat that's on the ground there. Um, out of the 1.8 million acres in Iowa right now for pollinator habitat, 218,000 of that, the most in the country right now, is enrolled in, in Conservation Practice 42. It's continuous CRP program, pollinator habitat. It's the most diverse uh, habitat that we can basically have on the landscape, and Pheasants Forever has been a huge proponent of that, of putting it down. And not only is it good for, for bees and, and uh, monarch butterflies to help restore those falling populations that a lot of people know about, but it makes the best brood rearing habitat that you can possibly have on the landscape. Um, and, you know, Pheasants Forever has just been a huge proponent of it. We've got different programs on the landscape right now where people can apply to, to get seed. In. And not even, even if it's not enrolled in CRP, there's a lot of people just doing it on their own. And those, you know, three to, three to five or three to ten acre chunks, that's making a difference. And, and to me, I think you've really seen that this year uh, in Iowa in uh, their bird numbers. This can be pretty good down there. And that, that's exactly what I saw when I was down there in June touring some pollinator plots that I talked about uh, combined with some precision agriculture. There were small plots, uh, an acre to five acres here and there, odd corners. We saw broods of pheasants. There were already monarchs in early June, a monarch butterflies mm -hmm. on these plots. And um, they're just prime for, for raising 
young. You know, you think about grass, and grass is good, but grass is dense. Grass is hard for a little chick the size of a bowling ball to run around in. Pollinator plots, the stems are individual. There's dirt down there that they can run through. They can run around the stems. They can get around. It's excellent um, brood-rearing habitat. And, and, and we talk about weather and snow in the winter and rains in the spring. There's one factor that can that can stem, stave off bad weather, and that's habitat. It's your one chance. You don't have any chance if you don't have quality habitat. So I got to ask, what strain of pheasants are in Iowa this side that have chicks the size of a bowling ball? <laughs> I, I, I thought I, I thought I said tennis ball. Because <laughs> <laughs> Iowa steroid pheasants. Yeah, they grow. They do grow big down there. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people have heard of the, the weather this year, though, and it, it kind of over in, in southeast South Dakota to southwest Minnesota along northern Iowa. I mean, they just had some really big rain events down there. But uh, even with that, you talk with folks down there. I met a landowner down there last year and, and hunted on his property. We just connected through Pheasants Forever and helped him out with some food plot seed and some native grass seed and other things. I mean, they got like – he had like 40 inches of rain on his property Uh so, but right now he's seeing, he's seeing a lot of broods that are still, I mean, they aren't that old. They're the size of softball yeah. still. So I think you're going to see, a, you know, Southern Minnesota, Southeast South Dakota and Northern Iowa, kind of that range. There's going to be a lot, there's going to be birds popping up, maybe not a lot, but there's going to be birds popping up for the opener this year that you're going to have a really hard time identifying because they aren't quite old enough yet. And that goes into the roadside count too, is that those really young broods, a lot of those are not accounted for in roadside counts because they're they're too young to come out to right. the road yet. So. Well, that's an important point. Um, one of the bio- biological facts of both pheasants and quail, <clears throat> if they lose a nest, right, they will re-nest mm-hmm. as long as – so say um, a raccoon eats a nest of, of eggs – Pheasant and quail are going to re-nest and try to pull off another clutch. Now, if a um, brood hatches and then they lose that brood, they're done. They're done. They will not re-nest. So, you know, we had some heavy rains in early June, which was tough across a lot of the pheasant range, um, probably um, potentially washed out some nests, which is the better scenario that it washes out the nest and then they re-nest as opposed to... Uh, pheasant chicks are real vulnerable to um, uh, exposure, cold, wet conditions when uh, right after hatch, and they'll die. If that happens, they won't re-nest. So the fact that in some places we are seeing um, really, really young broods is a good sign that they've had some re-nesting. The other biological component is each subsequent re-nest, re-nesting effort leads to less eggs right so yeah i think they usually say it's two two to three less eggs per re-nest right. they just don't have the energy to do on it. average the first nest will drop um you know 11 eggs right and mm-hmm. then each one keeps um subsequently decreasing so w- without further ado mr carpenter um uh, the information everybody's been waiting for we're gonna we're gonna have you break down kind of um let's start with an overview of the entire country and then we'll get into some of the some of the um, states people are of per, have particular interest in. But give us the 2018 pheasant hunting forecast as brought to you by Pheasants Forever and and sponsored by the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Tourism, and Parks. Well, it, it's hard to give you know as we've been talking 
everything is so localized as far as habitat, as far as winter weather, as far as spring conditions, and even sp even spring into summer rainfall can affect the quality of the grassland and the habitat and affect how those broods, uh, the, the success the hens have pulling out those broods. That said, you know, we do have to make a summary. What, what, what are we looking at on a macro scale for the pheasant season? And, and I, would, I would have to say as uh, going through, I think, 23 states, which I did this year, and uh, you're going to see most of them on, online now, and we'll talk about some of the, some of the uh, top states today. But the forecast is good. We have saw some states bounce back from an all-time low. South Dakota started bouncing back. Um, Iowa had, despite all those rain events, had, had sta stable to slightly increased numbers in their surveys. Um, Montana, the drought ended. They saw some nesting success. Now their numbers were very low, but they're starting to bounce back. North Dakota bounced back up about 16%. Now none of this is to say that, oh, everything's, everything's great and, and um, there's plenty of habitat. I mean, there can be a lot more habitat. There can be a lot more pheasants. There can be a lot more of all wildlife, a lot better water quality. It all comes down to habitat. And, um, but overall, before we get into each state, mm -hmm. that's my feeling. It, so you, I, I felt good. You, yeah, good. So I'll, I'll give us a letter grade that's probably a C, right? As far it, as far as looking at the history of pheasant hunting, I, I'm student Bobby St. Pierre in my third grade class. Give me a give me a letter <laughs> grade for what I did, how I did on the pheasant forecast. How you did? <laughs> I you know I, I think it's a Carp's not into standardized <laughs> testing. No. How about, how about this? Let's try this. Like, okay. Where Where would you go hunting if you if you were just gonna, like, if you're gonna pick a couple states, where would you just had had to point the compass? I'm gonna hunt in my home state of Minnesota. I think um, I'll give a few. I'll give a small a short list here. Um, I'm gonna hunt Minnesota. We have a lot of members in Minnesota. I live in Minnesota. Um, we're gonna have birds this year, and. Uh, Anthony and I joke a lot about, we, I, I do talk to some of the, I, uh, these biologists and, and Pheasants Forever biologists as well as the state biologists. And Anthony and I always joke about how they always talk about, well, your hunters are going to have to put on the boot leather this year and wear out the boot leather. But it's true. I mean, it's, it's just as true as anything you can imagine. And, and th so I'm going to hunt Minnesota. South Dakota, definitely. I would hunt South Dakota even at the numbers they had last year because there's still birds on this, the landscape. There's going to be more this year, and we'll get into some of the regions. Um, Nebraska, um, I haven't been to Nebraska for quite a while. I re I'm going to go out there in western Nebraska and hunt some pollinator pieces. And uh, so for sure Nebraska, Iowa as well. Um, we're going to go hunt with some chapters in eastern Iowa who have been putting, one chapter has put 20, uh, 20 acquisitions in 20 years hmm. on the ground. And um, so those, would be, those are going to be my big ones, Minnesota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa. And uh, I'm trying to line up uh, a trip to Michigan. Uh, the Michigan Pheasant Restoration Initiative is going strong. We'll talk about a few, a few numbers there. But Michigan has a storied pheasant hunting history. And um, there's a lot of 
people there, led by Pheasants Forever chapters, um, bringing, bringing back pheasants. And uh, we had a good report from Bill Vanderzowen, our representative in Michigan, and I sort of processed some of his feedback for the Michigan report. So I'm hoping to get to Michigan. And you've already, you've already been hunting, bird hunting in Kansas. It wasn't pheasants, but you, were, you yeah. opened up your prairie chicken season there. Yeah, I was down in Kansas last week with Lark, the little Epignol Breton <laughs> puppy, and, and I have to brag her up a little bit. She pointed a prairie chicken, my, my five-month-old pup. I came up over a hill, and she was on point and staring a prairie chicken in the face, and um, and we got it. So um, that was in the Smoky Hills in Kansas. Um, we didn't see a lot of pheasants out down there, but we weren't looking for them either. Right. You we, were hunting different cover. We're hunting, we're hunting high country, graze, pasture land for chickens. All right, so, so let's dive in. Yep. Um, first state, I believe they're the... Montana has the first pheasant opener, um, or at least it's it's one of the first. Yeah, yeah Montana and, and Montana and North Dakota share on October sixth. Okay, okay. So pretty early. Anthony and the Rooster Road Trip crew were out there early last October, after, right after their opener, and that's like seventh, eighth, ninth of October. So you've got an early early opener out in Montana. Um, so when we when we look at Montana, we break it down by region. I mean, Montana is is a huge place, and we actually we usually look at three regions in Montana: the southeast, which is region seven, the north central, which is region four. That's sort of that most classic bird country uh, in that in that central central zone, and then there's the northeastern Montana, region six. So, bird's eye view of Montana is they're coming off that drought mm -hmm. and they had some rain habitat came back had a few weather events in the spring i think bird num bird numbers are going to be up in most of these regions in montana we'll break it down a little bit but they're start they were starting awfully low in the first place and um would i go to montana i was i was close to planning a trip to montana uh this fall i think i'm going to hold it for next fall um i might regret that decision but I, it, it could be a good fall to go to montana because the report we're going to give here is going to be yeah fair to good numbers and maybe that'll hold some people back and you'll have some more some more open land to yourself and there's a lot of it out there yeah there are it, there is a lot of uh land hunt birds people think montana and think uh you know big game but it is absolutely one of the most picturesque places to go on an upland bird hunt there's a few of the the signature pheasants forever land acquisitions that are in montana coffee creek wolf creek um uh, you know, whether the bird numbers are through the roof or not, to harvest a, a pheasant under the big sky in the shadow of the Rockies, it yep. doesn't get a whole heck of a lot better. Yep. Let's move uh, just back to the east, uh, North Dakota. You touched on they have the same opening day as Montana. What's North Dakota pheasant hunting season look like? Um, North Dakota is coming back. Um, they had a tough time, though, with from the drought last year. It really hammered the habitat. I mean, it, we're, we're talking about grasslands, uh, talking about a drought, knocking back that grass. Um, their roadside counts were okay, um, but they had some regional increases, especially in the southeast. The southwest um, had the most pheasants per 100 miles surveyed. Um, so 
there's going to be more pheasants on the ground in, in North Dakota this year. Um, I think you could expect a little better season than last year if you hunted it last year. Um, I think like any place, it's going to be looking for some the, the best habitat. Yeah. Um, but North Dakota will definitely bounce back a little bit. I think they had um, they had some really good rains this spring that really brought the habitat back, but they didn't quite get the hatch. If they can maintain some rain, keep that habitat, it could be even better again for 2019. Well, if you think about North Dakota, and Jared mentioned this, they've lost over half their um, CRP acres. That's compounded the impact of I think two winters ago, just a horrific um, amount of snow, and then followed up by a really terrible drought. Um, you know, the bird numbers are coming back. Anthony's been out sharp tail hunting up there, so there's birds to chase, but they've got a ways to go to get back to that, you know, those 07, 08 numbers. You know, the, the thing when you're thinking about North Dakota, if you can follow that uh, Interstate 94 line and then focus your attention south of that line, um, you're, you're in the primary um, yeah. range of North Dakota. Just to tie North Dakota back to Montana, to Montana too. That's sort of like that's sort of how I'd summarize Montana too. The south, the northeast, and the southeast are experiencing. They experience that same drought as Western North Dakota, and they're at the sort of the same level of coming back. It's they're not they're they're stabilized, um, but not quite back this year. And in moving to um, uh, the state in which Pheasants Forever is based, Minnesota. Um, you know, coming into the season or into the forecast, we were all um, pretty nervous. We had a really heavy snowstorm around tax day, followed by some pretty heavy rains. But uh, uh, we got some good news for Minnesota. What's the forecast for this for the land of 10,000 lakes, Mr. Carpenter? Yeah, overall, uh, the statewide brood index was up 28%. Um, a much better count than last year. Now, last year was was a low a low point, um, but we seem to have fought off that weather, the weather events we had, the late spring snow, the summer rains. I, I talked to a lot of people all summer that were just sort of devastated and down in the dumps, just assuming that all that rain in southwestern Minnesota mm-hmm. is going to take care of all these chicks and that it's going to wipe them out. And... I don't think it happened. Uh, Jared told the story earlier. I had that corroborated by uh, a similar story in another area of southwestern Minnesota that these birds are, maybe we did lose some nests down in that core sort of pheasant range, um, but there are young broods on the landscape that probably didn't even get surveyed. Um, I think it's going to be a good year in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota puts out a map. It's available to everybody online, the pheasant hunting prospects. Um, you can look at that map and look at the colors and see exactly where the highest bird counts are. Um, I'd suggest maybe some of those spots that are in the brown, which is the most, the, which is the good, which is the best rating for the for the roadside counts, are good. But that's that's also where everybody else is going to go. We, I, I truly believe too, like upland hunters and just folks in general just don't give upland birds or maybe any wildlife probably the credit they deserve. I mean, through through evolution, right? It's not mm. the fir- not the first time they've had a late spring snowstorm 
or a bunch of rain come through. So I think it just kind of speaks to the bird and, and how hardy they actually are and, and how much, I mean, they, they want to survive, and that's in, in the springtime. I mean, they're totally focused on, on making that next next generation yeah. of birds, which is probably going to last 12 months. But well, and you couple that, uh, the will to survive and will to um, reproduce with, you know, we're trying to paint the picture of an entire state the size of Minnesota or Montana and, that's pretty hard to do when you consider yep. weather is relatively local, right? And mm-hmm. habitat certainly is. And you might have a spectacular 40-acre piece with tremendous brood cover, some shelter belts, yep. and, oh, number one, nesting cover, right? And there's birds galore and down the road. If you don't have that recipe, there's not birds there. So it, it does go back to the lace up the boots and go find yep. out what's out there. And you put a, you put a good dog Right with a nose, yep. The whole world can change. Minnesota has one thing going for that <clears throat> that's kind of been understated, though. I think it was even understated in the um, in the report, and and I and I guess I can see that you know the people fixate on these numbers, and it's just right out there. But you know, we've been talking about CRP loss, CRP loss. Mm-hmm. I've been talking about that for <laughs> a long time, and that's kind of been that's kind of been the theme of the last decade, basically. But here in Minnesota. And things might change going forward, but this last year we added 90,000 acres of habitat. 90,000 acres. I mean, you think about, mm, I mean, that, that's a lot. Yep. Uh, you know, it's some, that's a combination of uh, permanent acquisitions. It'll be wildlife areas, waterfowl production areas, private lands, habitat added. I mean, Jesus. you think about going out, you hunt like a half section, it seems huge. That's 300 acres. We added 90,000 acres. You know, that that's, you know, when we talk back to the beginning of the conversation when it's, well, we can't control the weather. We can control the habitat. Guess what? We controlled added habitat, and that helps. When, you know, just like we talked about in Iowa, like you know, they stayed stable or went up because the you know the habitat, the quality of it probably improved. Well, here in Minnesota, we've added acres. They're quality acres. You know, we have a lot of things cooking in this state with um, dedicated funding, with a legacy amendment, strong pheasants forever footprint. A lot of uh, network of biologists, um, far, pheasants forever farm bill biologists, precision ag people to work with landowners. We have a buffers initiative, which you know um, people kicking and streaming, screaming have complied with it nonetheless, and it's doing good things for our pheasant population. Now, that might change, you know, pen, farm bill pending, but you know that that's just that's that's the key ingredient that stands out to me, and I guess we got to shout that you add. I mean, we added almost 100,000 acres of habitat, and that's really freaking hard to do yep. <laughs> in, yeah. and, in this day and age. And so you those combination of things, it's like that just tells me that when we do that, um, we can weather these bad years. Mm-hmm. Yep. And a lot of these different states, too, I would encourage people if, you know, a lot of these DNR reports that come out from roadside reports or a lot of them have some type of pheasant report on the DNR website – Go on there and look at um, CRP and, and overall habitat and the, the line that it creates over time. The pheasant abundance line or the, the, road, the roadside index per year, it, it follows it pretty close. So, yep. you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't think CRP, you know, or, or habitat in general has effect on pheasant populations. You know, it's all weather, whatever, whatever the case might be. Just go, go look at those maps. They ebb and flow extremely well together just depending on you know habitat gain and loss so bottom line for minnesota is anybody can go online and look at the pheasant map and it's a good guide but 
don't ignore areas that maybe aren't the color that's most mm -hmm. intense. Mm -hmm. uh, because as Bob said, there are areas where when the habitat's good, you're going to see a lot of uh, uh, birds this year. The last point I'll make for Minnesota is I, I did have a, a person I hadn't heard from for many years uh, call me up after I uh, he had heard I got the editor job here. And he was talking about pheasant hunting in Minnesota. And um, I just sort of had to laugh at him because he was talking about not a place to hunt. And I, I, I just told him outright, I said, you've got a million acres out there. Just get out and do it, mm -hmm. you know. There's there's no reason not to hunt pheasants in Minnesota. And if you don't hunt them in Minnesota this year, you're making up excuses. So just a clarification point. I think you said um, brood numbers were up 28%. Overall population um, was up 19%, right, yeah, in the think, state of Minnesota? I think that's right. Yep. Okay. So just a distinction there for folks. The brood is um, obviously young chicks that were observed during the roadside count. The 19% is overall adults yep. and, and, and youngsters together. So that's a, and, that's a good stat. And we've been talking, and I saw it this weekend. It was Minnesota duck opener, and I was out in western Minnesota. Counties to remain unnamed, but you can, you can find them on there. It's a county that's a good color. And we saw a lot, we saw a lot of pheasants that were roadside that were half-colored roosters. They're young birds out there, just as we talked about earlier. So we will we will move to the east where you were born. Yes, the the uh, one of the top uh, membership states of Pheasants Forever. I believe it is uh, seventh, sixth, seventh number of members in the entire country, and home to the second largest land acquisition, permanently protecting acres. The state of the Packers, the yep. state of Aaron Rodgers, the state of Wisconsin. Uh, give us the uh, Wisconsin pheasant forecast. Cheesehead country. Yeah, Wisconsin seemed to have a pretty good hatch this year. Um, they did, you know, we talked about the consistency on these surveys. They saw a low, lower number of, of observers than usual participating in the survey, and that could make the data less accurate, um, according to Jackie Christopher, who's the upland biologist there. But bottom line, their pheasant numbers were pretty flat from last year. Um, once again, we don't know exactly anecdotally if there's a lot of young birds uh, out there yet hatching. Uh, I mean, um, uh, you know, surviving and and just starting to get big enough to see but um some of the regions in wisconsin one of the top regions for wild birds is this wet the west central part of the state uh dunn pierce st croix pepin counties there's a lot of there's a lot of grassland left uh there there's it's a big mosaic uh, to use the word jared likes to use it's a mosaic of wetlands and uplands and woodlands and green and there's still there's still operational dairy farms there uh so that's one of the big areas the east central part of the state is good um a lot of l marsh and lowlands in that area and there are some birds down in the southwest as well um but the strongest population is up in that west central area. Um, Wisconsin will produce some pheasants this year. One of the keys in Wisconsin is is getting some habitat, maybe becoming a late season hunter after the main deer season is over. It's it's not out of the question to, to ask and get permission to hunt in Wisconsin once the uh, holy grail of the gun deer season is over <laughs> in, in Wisconsin. Anecdotally, I will say, um, 
in the two offices next to us where we're, we're here right now, we've got John Edstrom and, and Rich Wissink of Pheasants Forever, both pretty big dog trainers. And talking to both of those guys um, who train uh, over in that portion of the state, they've been seeing pheasant broods uh, and fairly large ones. I mean, comparatively, Edstrom, Edstrom told me just the other day that they were surprised at, at the number of chicks they were seeing in the broods uh, and what size they were. So I think that, that probably bodes well for, for your report and, and, you know, on the West Central side. Yep. And moving next, and, you know, we're not following a real um, scientific reason for why I'm going this, uh, this route on states, but it's basically around um, when the openers are occurring, which is why uh, we're going to go to the pheasant capital, the land where they put a pheasant on their quarter, right? We're going to South Dakota, ladies and gentlemen. What... Well, we already told you what the percent increase is. Carp, give us the details of South Dakota's rise in 2018, their 100th anniversary or their 100th hunting season. Yeah, it's the pheasantennial in South Dakota, and it starts October 13th uh, to the to the to the 19th, which is residents, and then the 20, uh, starting October 20th, non-residents can hunt. Um, and South Dakota season goes all the way to January 6th. Um, and that's an important point before we get into uh, some of the details of South Dakota and some of the places in South Dakota is that there's a lot of pheasants there and there's a lot of hunters on the opening couple weekends, but there's a lot of good hunting left after that. And uh, don't ignore South Dakota just because you don't get out there on the opener with everybody else. Um, you know, South Dakota, as we talked, had an eventful spring, uh, as Travis Runya, their uh, senior upland game biologist, reported to me. Eventful meaning record cold, unprecedented snow. Uh, but then that was followed up by a very warm May. Um, I was out turkey hunting. Anthony and I were out turkey hunting in, in the South Dakota-Nebraska border in what was about the 10th of May or so, and it was quite warm and, and pleasant already, and that boded well for the hatch. And, and that produced that helped produce a 47% increase in pheasant abundance in South Dakota. Their per-mile index was 2.47 birds per mile, up from a low of 1.68 last year. So Fez South Dakota coming off a low, uh, did pretty good, came back, had a good hatch. Um, all areas of the state saw an increase in, in their pheasant index uh, for, per the roadside count. So, you know, I think everything's looking for a strong hunt in South Dakota this year. We, we know, what do we say? There's 6 million birds in South Dakota. Where are you going to go? Well, you're probably going to go the place you usually go. Um, and there'll be more birds there. Um, so what are some of the options if you're thinking about exp expanding your wings a little bit? Where, where, where were these birds? Uh, what areas turned out even better. Uh, Huron and Mitchell areas were really strong in the roadside counts. Um, the entire James River Valley all the way up to Aberdeen was really good. That's a good core area anyway. Um, that southern James River Valley has a lot of crep land. Mm. That's all, if it's crep, mm. conservation reserve enhancement in South Dakota, it's open to public hunting. And um, it's, it's that southern part of the James River Valley isn't quite as famous as some of the other areas, but there's good, there's spots to hunt down there. Um, northeastern South Dakota, known as the Prairie Coteau, uh, saw increases as well. So really the entire 
South Dakota landscape saw an increase some areas more than others, but uh, setting up for a 100 season, it looks like a pretty good year in South Dakota. Um, I think one thing I really want to throw out too is to give a shout out to our chapters out there who have been really working to open up more habitat and public access to people. So one thing I want to mention really quick is we've got a new program out there called the Community-Based Habitat Access Program. Um, and it was initiated by Pheasants Forever and it's in Aberdeen, started in Aberdeen, moved to Mitchell and is now in Chamberlain. But Pheasants Forever chapters are putting in upwards, uh, I think in Aberdeen they put in 100000 or 50000 In Mitchell uh, they put in 150000 That's chapter investments from their banquets. They match that with community-based businesses and organizations that benefit from pheasant hunters coming out, um, and they use that money as an incentive for landowners to enroll new CRP acres but also tie that to the walk-in access program. Yep. So I would encourage people, if you're around Aberdeen, Mitchell, Chamberlain area this year, they're signing up a lot of new acres. They're still signing up right now. That probably won't, won't be on the map, but it will be on the app uh, for Game Fish and Parks. Go out there and check it out. I know I think the guys are going to cover it when they're out there uh, for Rooster Road Trip this year. Um, but that's a new program, and if you go to a walk-in area and it has a green sign next to it and it says Community-Based Habitat Access Program, you can thank uh, Pheasants Forever uh, chapters in South Dakota and the members that attend those banquets for opening up more access and creating more pheasants and other wildlife in those areas. Yeah, we had a there was a forum at, at Pheasant Fest this year uh, specifically uh, with the Aberdeen group talking about how they did that with the Pheasants Forever chapter, how they built it, mm -hmm. and there was a lot. Of, a lot, many more communities, many communities attend, sent representatives to attend that yep. that seminar, and uh, that's sort of how ch the Chamberlain uh, group came in, and we're hoping for more to keep coming. Yep, it sounds it sounds like it's taken off in a lot of different communities, and for folks that want to read more about it, um, if you if you're a member of Pheasants Forever, which you should be if you're an upland <laughs> hunter. Um, coming up in the winter issue in the fe pheasant country section, uh, which I help write in the back, uh, we've got for the new for the new Chamberlain Community Access Program. There's a nice write up in there talking about how it works and uh, maybe where it's headed. So okay. check that out. One other note about South Dakota is with the rain this year, um, there was little to no emergency haying, as I understand it, on a lot of these. Uh, th these walk-in lands, a lot of these grasslands. Uh, hunters saw it last year because of the drought. Uh, some of that land had to be hayed. That's just part of the deal. Um, and this year you won't see as much of that just because of the conditions. That's going to add a lot of habitat too on the ground. Uh, Jared and I saw it last year. We mm -hmm. hunted some spots um, in the northern James River Valley that, you know, we we came up and part of it was hayed. And it's like, well, that's just part of the deal. We partner with agriculture. It was a tough year. Year. They had to haze some of that. There is still habitat on the ground for pheasants. I will say it also created some nice edges, though, to hunt. Oh, yeah, it did. And <laughs> people need to realize, too, is that when, when there's emergency haying yeah. and grazing going on, that, that actually can benefit a lot of these areas where yep. maybe a monoculture of grass has started to set in. It's another management tool in the in the toolbox well, uh, of CRP management. So I actually can't wait to get back to some of those spots that were mowed and see what there's one right, There's them. one right by Aberdeen that I know you remember with <laughs> oh, Rascal. Oh, I know. That we're going to get back to. <laughs> yeah. So well, we encourage we, people to check like it out. How, like how, how close to Aberdeen? <laughs> About seven miles. <laughs> but we, we won't tell you which direction. I don't want a, I don't want a hot spot, though, because I don't want to people get on people's bats. Well, we will I, I will point out one hot 
tip that Carpenter just sort of slipped in there, and that is uh, South Dakota is a spectacular place to go late season hunting. You know, there's a lot of tradition that revolves around early season hunting in South Dakota, but you invariably run into a situation where the corn is still up, right? And the the birds are in the fields, in the cornfields during the day, and you might pick them off here or there as they're coming back into the grass to roost. But if you go out there late season, December on, yep, everything's harvested. And, oh, by the way, they have, what do we say, six point some million <laughs> birds. Mm-hmm. And they yes. have a lot of wetlands out there that are frozen now, right, and yep. you're, when you're thinking December. So, you know, def- you got two pieces, uh, two time frames to go out to South Dakota with one license, right? Yep. Go Keep your traditions. Go out there for early season. Go out for the opener. Hang with the fellas. And then go back, yep. December. I, I think there's one other thing. <clears throat> I'll be the myth buster today uh, that I want to point out about South Dakota, too. Just things that, uh, I guess, they enter the public consciousness, and then and then they, you know, they just seem to exist there. But, you know, a lot of people think, like, I mean, it's a fact. Like, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of outfits, outfitters. Um, the preserves. Hunting preserves, yeah. pheasant preserves in South Dakota. And, and uh, I, I think there's a fair a fair number of wild bird upland hunters that think that 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 those that those birds are counted in the harvest statistics and that they're they, also counted in the forecast which is the opposite of truth yes they're 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 not right. i mean that's that's just it they're they're they don't they're not they're not the the population estimates that it, it just completely focuses on on wild birds and that's it so that um you know that stuff is completely excluded and outside of you know what the game fish and parks focuses on and i think that's you know that's just another thing when we say there's 6.7 million pheasants it's that number isn't being augmented by any released birds there that's 6.7 million wild pheasants which i guess what i'm getting at is that you know the stuff has to be taken like contextually and it's like sometimes i think people forget how how much bigger that is than like anything else and i, I mean i've I'm looking at the list we're talking about, and I like hunting in lots of states for lots of species and in different states for lots of reasons. It's not just to bag birds. I like, you know, the environment and the landscape and people and blah, blah, blah. There's there's different motivations for going to places. But if you're looking just for pure bird numbers, you know, South Dakota is like Africa and every other state is like or every other state that we're talking about is like Rhode Island. You know, that's, I mean, that's kind of a comparison. It's just, they, they don't really compare, right? you know, and, and that's not, yeah. that's not to say there's not great hunting in any other state. It's just to, it's just to try to build a comparison of like scale, you know, like no other state is really even close. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They're just, they're just yep. not. And so, um, but that's another thing that just kind of, it rattles me when when people talk about yeah well they're just releasing birds in South Dakota it's like no those those are wild birds that we're that we're talking about and that that's even you know we're talking about habitat loss um, and that it's down you know it's been kind of rebounding from a modern low that's a lot of birds I I like my chances <laughs> yeah you know I like my chances of going out for a couple of days and finding you know six or nine birds right yep all right. All right, we'll move to uh, to my birth state, <laughs> huh? the Great Lakes state, Michigan. Uh, what can Michiganders expect for their uh, pheasant season? Well, there is, you know, there is a, a season October 10th to 31st in the UP, but the Lower Peninsula, uh, 
season one is October 20th to November 14th. And similar to Wisconsin, you know, Michigan as a deer state, mm-hmm. they actually close pheasant season for deer hunting season. We close, we close, uh, Michigan closes, closes grouse season, closes we life. closes everything. Okay. I didn't even go to school during deer season, <laughs> Carp. <laughs> Well, that explains why. Well, I'm serious. They <laughs> shut down um, where I grew up, Escanaba. Yep. They closed school on opening day of deer season because Michigan is one of those states where November 15th, 15th yep. no matter what day of the week that falls, that's deer season, and you don't go to school. I personally took September 15th <laughs> off, For grouse. which was grouse season. My teachers didn't quite understand why I didn't have to show up. But I, why does, why do, I feel like that's like a, like a, like a blue law. That they they close the other seasons though, like, isn't that? I mean, I, I mean, I'm kind of joking, but I'm like kind of not. I mean, I'm actually I'm not. It's it's it seems kind of discriminatory. Well, the the reality is, if they didn't close school in the UP on November fifteenth, it, it would functionally be closed because nobody would. Yeah, show but up. I, what I'm getting at is like, if if you want a grouse hunt, mm-hmm. what like. Why? Why are they like overregulating that? Like, is it just for? Is it because there's so many deer hunters that it's yeah. such a that it's like they, you don't want to be out hunting grouse? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't want to be grouse hunting you in the want. Michigan woods during deer season. It's, okay, it's just. I, I think they sell the third most deer hunting licenses yeah. in the I think, country. I think only Wisconsin and Texas. Are you, ahead. you ever you ever done that big buck pole contest over there? <laughs> I you know feel a joke coming. No, no, I'm serious. You know what I'm talking about? No, I no idea. You see that? See the picture? Uh, one of the, one of the guys who used to have a pheasant fest, un- Uncle Millie, uh-huh. puts that on. <laughs> and I've seen a picture of it where there'll be like there'll be like 30 deer hanging from just this huge spruce pole in a parking lot, and just masses of people standing there waiting to see, you know, who who got the, the biggest big biggest buck. <laughs> Maybe that's why they miss the whole week because they're out there so late. You know? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can't respond to that one, but but Carp can tell us about the Michigan well, pheasant season. Michi- Sorry, Michigan's <laughs> got off track there. Michigan's got big roosters too, and um, you know they've got big success with their Michigan Pheasant Restoration Initiative that started back in 2010. And you know, as we talked a little bit before, Michigan, you know, maybe isn't your classic pheasant state, but there's a heck of a pheasant hunting tradition in Michigan in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And some of it's coming back. Uh, through, through 2016, the MPRI, the Pheasant Restoration Initiative, added 108,000 acres of habitat, and that's largely driven by Pheasants Forever chapters in those first seven years in, in conjunction with the, the Michigan DNR, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Ducks Unlimited, National Wild Turkey Foundation, Federation, and County Conservation Districts. So that's a lot of habitat, and that's made a difference for Michigan pheasants. They actually had a good hatch this year, um, and I think it's going to be a good season. Um, despite their their CRP is in is is about half. It was 330,000 acres in 2007. It's just a little under half of that now. But that's the reason for this, the MPRI, the Pheasant Restoration Initiative. It's brought 108,000 acres of habitat back. And a lot of that's uh, on game areas. It's accessible for public hunting. A lot of it's on private land as well. As we all know, a lot of pheasants are produced on private land. But a lot of that land becomes accessible after deer season again. And that's... 
comes back to Michigan split season, that, that December 1st opener, uh, could almost be construed as the big opener in Michigan. Um, but there are, um, and they also have a lot of safe acres, CRP safe, which is state acres for wildlife enha- enhancement. That saw about 17,000 acres signed up just in a couple months this summer. So I think they just, didn't they just get like 40,000 40, for a pheasant yep. and uh the butterfly yeah, monarch safe well with the next farm bill if we can get a farm bill out which could be a topic we could cover if we have time at the end but yeah that could come with the next farm bill 40,000 more acres so that southeastern michigan is really the place where the pheasants are going strong um and that's because there's a lot of chapters down there doing a lot of work um some of the counties are huron sanilac tuscola gratiot saginaw bay midland there and there's a lot of state game areas down there too the list well, and they also in some of those uh, counties are up in the thumb area which yeah. has a lot of crep uh, crep um yeah. and there's some excellent habitat and some i've heard uh hunters having a little bit of success in the thumb area yep. so yeah, we've got a lot of members. I think it's the number five. Yes, that's right. You heard it right. F- number five yep. number of members uh, for the entire Pheasants Forever organization in the state of Michigan. So you got some decent prospects out there for harvesting a wild rooster in the Great Lakes state. Let's move uh, a little bit south and um, hit up the home of National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic 2019 coming at you to Illinois. The story in Illinois is, you know, when you think about it, they've lost habitat too, but there's still 900,000 acres of CRP in Illinois, and they enrolled over 100,000 acres of the pollinator habitat. Jared talked about CP42. I think they come in second in the country. Yep, since 2012. And there's over 25,000 acres of safe habitat there that we just talked about, state acres for wildlife enhancement, all sort of alternatives to traditional CRP, which could become more, those alternatives could become more important than ever as we near completion of a farm bill or not this year. Um, East central Illinois is sort of the classic pheasant area um, and, and I think still will continue to be so, although you see some good pockets along the western side too when you get above the Mississippi River bluffs and out into some of that broken farm country. Um, Illinois sh- sh- shot just about twenty-five to 30,000 pheasants over the last couple of years. Um, uh, annual average. Annual average, yeah. yep, annual average. So there's birds in Illinois. There's, there's a lot of CRP. Um, we just need to continue the habitat work. There's a lot of areas of Illinois that are habitat challenged as well, and that's why we have a lot of active chapters, both Pheasants Forever yeah. and Quail Forever, working hard there. Yeah, well, it's the uh, number three state for uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members, and you know, part of the reason we're bringing National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic to Illinois is, you know, we're working with the Illinois DNR. We've got a lot of fun and uh, really innovative things going from a habitat perspective in the state with right of ways and the Ameren um, company. Um, we're doing a lot of pollinator habitat work, so. Trying to make uh, make an impression on the landscape for, for the birds in the state of Illinois. Yep. Moving to the west and uh, a state near and dear to Jared's heart. You bet. The state of Iowa. Let's go Cyclones. <laughs> There's probably a lot of Hawkeye fans out there. Well, Iowa, Iowa had a good uh, roadside count, too. Um, 
about 39% um, was the punching the weather data into their model it predicted an increase i don't they didn't see quite the increase they thought but once again they a good swath of northwestern to southeastern iowa is sort of that classic pheasant range and they all it seemed to produce this year once again as we talked about minnesota um a lot of rain in northern iowa and it seems like some late broods across northern Iowa uh, that may turn turn some of the uh, turn some of the hunting around for that state. Um, Todd Bogenschutz, the uh, upland game manager there in Iowa, said this fall has a possibility of being the best for pheasants over the last decade. Um, part of that is the crops are maturing quickly. I saw that in western Minnesota as well. There could be a good crop harvest in for Iowa's October 27th opener. It's just a little late, uh, late enough that uh, it's late enough to be good, but it's early enough that all the corn might not be off. Uh, the more the more crop harvest happens, the better obviously it's going to be for hunting. Um, so CRP is keeping pheasants for is keeping pheasants on the land in Iowa. Um, it's 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 stable at about one point mil eight. 1.8 million acres now um, we have to uh, we have to keep that number going and we have to keep that CRP fresh and and uh, you know do the things like mowing and grazing and and burning and, and keeping that habitat fresh um, hopefully with a good farm bill we'll be able to keep it and bring and bring it back uh, like I said I think the northwest the north central and then swathing down through Des Moines into the southeast is going to be uh, going to be the area I'm going to leave it to Jared a little bit he's our Iowa <laughs> he's our Iowa expert I keep uh, I don't know about expert but I, I keep in touch with a lot of chapter leaders down there I've got a lot of good friends down there out of the uh, I was in the northern Polk chapter out of Ankeny which is a suburb of Des Moines and that I'll tell you what that I-80 corridor this year, it's kind of a kind of famed area back in the day um, for, for pheasant hunting and for quail too. Um, there's going to be some excellent opportunities around, you know, within reasonable distance of the Des Moines area this year. There's a lot of work going on down there. A lot of land acquisitions have been done. Uh, a lot of chapters uh, doing this uh, adopt a wildlife area where they're working with counties and working with the state to upgrade areas, to make them the best they can be. And I, I think that's a point I want to put out to people is, um, you know, in, in a time with fewer acres, Pheasants Forever is doing all it can to make every acre the best it can possibly be for wildlife. And if we can continue to do that, and I think Iowa's done a spectacular job of that. And, um, you know, that, that central corridor, especially and, and further South, and I'm, I'm sure we'll probably do a quail podcast coming up too, but if you're looking for a, a combo hunt, this could be a very good year uh, to go to uh, to go to Iowa, especially in the southern region. Why, yes, we are doing a quail forever quail hunting. Why well, I won't I won't give it all away then. <laughs> but no, it's a that's that's good. Uh, Chad Love, who is our new quail forever editor, is uh, working on the quail hunting forecast right now. And for folks listening, the the pheasant forecast comes out a little bit before the quail forecast, just because states do the pheasant hunting uh, roadside counts ahead of the quail forecast because in uh, some of our southern states uh, nesting season lasts a little bit longer mm. um, so expect and look for a quail hunting f uh, podcast uh, probably in the month of October when Chad's in town, we're going to record that with him. But you did tease Iowa quail, and I think Todd in, with the DNR said it was a pretty uh, massive statement, something to, to the effect of if you're ever going to hunt quail in Iowa, 
this is the year to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, anecdotally from all my friends down there and chapter guys, they're just seeing a lot of birds. I mean, all the way from pheasant and quail up kind of by like the Denison area, kind of west, west central, almost, almost to the north. Swinging down through that Des Moines area there, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for folks. Uh, there's wildlife management areas, county areas. Um, there's uh, just southeast of Des Moines, there's a really nice uh, national wildlife refuge that is open portions of it to public hunting that I've done really well in the past. So I encourage people, if you're looking for a hunt, especially late season, uh, for guys that might be a little bit further south, Iowa could be a really good choice this year. Moving to the West, another state that a lot of folks think in um, big game, and that's uh, Colorado. But Colorado's got some roosters to chase too, don't they, Cart? Yeah, they. Um, winter and spring were dry out there, according to our reports, and um, it did affect uh, populations. They, they, a couple of hailstorms in July and August seemed to have had some impact. Um, but northeastern Colorado, which is the core range, uh, should have a, a hunt about like last year. Uh, the populations seemed well. Now, you know, we talked earlier about roadside counts. Colorado and Montana don't do roadside counts. The reason being their weather is so dry, they don't have enough dew to push the, push the birds out of the habitat. So that's the reason to the roadsides. That's the reason they don't do roadside counts. So uh, I figured it was just because they didn't even have enough roads. <laughs> they, um, you finally answered that mystery for me. That's right. They, they're they finally uh, – so the, a lot of what, you know, you, you learn out of these states is, is anecdotal. Um, but I th- we think that northeastern corner of Colorado, that, that sort of classic – classic country uh, um, sterling holyoke yuma that triangle yeah, that exists yeah, out there yuma kit carson phillips sedgwick counties um and one of the big things up there is is the uh is the circle irrigation field mm-hmm. corners that that pheasants forever has been involved with putting those into pheasant habitat there's been over 300 corners and when pheasant forever improves that habitat that's automatically enrolled in their walk-in is that Corners, corners for conservation? Yes, that's corners for conservation. Over 300 circle irrigation field corners are open up there, and they're, they're all in Colorado's walk-in access program. What, what's the size of, of a corner? That's what I didn't get a chance to look up before the podcast. I wanted to, I wanted to figure that out. I don't know the number. Big enough to hold a rooster. <laughs> There's your answer. Um, but the other the other thing is in Colorado is there, we talked about combo hunts. If you want to think about a special combo mm-hmm. hunt, southeastern Colorado has good quail counts too. That I think... I think it'll be down from last year, but there's still a good good numbers of quail. And I, I almost might consider southeastern Colorado a quail focus mm-hmm. with bonus pheasant, wh- whereas Iowa might be pheasant focus bonus quail. Are we talking scaled or yeah, both both bobs and scales yep. down there, and and the scales will be out in the rangeland more. The bobs will be more in the agricultural land. So I think Colorado's going to have a, a decent season. There, uh, there it's hard to tell exactly what their counts are. They had a, a little rough weather, but they had some decent rain for habitat, and they've got some habitat on the ground now. Bouncing right over to the uh, Colorado's neighbor to the east, uh, Nebraska. Nebraska is always uh, one of my absolute favorite places to to hunt. You get a chance to bag in, like you mentioned, pheasants, right? Quail, 
potentially prairie chicken down there. Uh, give sharp us the tails. sharp tail up in the north. Give us uh, the uh, the um, Nebraska forecast. Well, sort of in the litany uh, with our late spring. They had a tough late spring too, but a lot of that translated into more moisture on the ground to grow good habitat. Um, they've seen good broods out in the field anecdotally, um, but most this, most reports say the pheasant population is going to be above the five-year average, but a little below last year. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, um, Nebraska doesn't have as many winter events as some of the other states. They bring a lot of pheasants through uh, the winter because there's not as much winter. And I think the southwest and the panhandle are probably going to be a couple of the top areas in Nebraska for pheasants. Um, but you might want to sort of hedge your bets in Nebraska according to what else what else you want to change as well. Um, they have a good open fields and waters program in Alaska. Uh, that I don't know exactly. In Alaska or Nebraska? Or did I say Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> and I will say it's not good. It's spectacular. Yes. Nebraska's open fields and, uh, and waters, which is basically a walk-in program, building in public access on top of private land. Uh, most of those acres are in the southwest corner of the yep. state, and they are some of the best I've ever hunted. Yeah, don't go to Alaska. It, well, you, no, so you can go it, there too for birds, for the for pheasants and quail. Chase, chase ptarmigans there, but. Yes. Uh, well, I'll just, I'll just add in, since Nebraska is another state, they have kind of a corners program. <laughs> I figured I didn't want to leave our listeners hanging. but And that's where I visit the old Wikipedia page. And uh, when you got those, when, when, like tip, typical uh, with, with a center pivot system, it'll you'll have an irrigated, farmed 125 acres, which leaves, you know, that remaining 35, uh, four corners. So you're looking at like eight to nine acres for a corner, corner. you know. Okay. So maybe like 35 acres for a whole field if they were all in all four corners when rolled. But, you know, eight acres, like we talked about, that's um, that's definitely enough for to hold some pheasants and, and even some quail in that and, part of the country. And think about where four fields come together and you mm-hmm. have four times eight or nine right there. Then you've got 32, yep. yeah, 32 to 40. Yeah, that's a neat program. And, it uh, is. Cool. All right, and um, as we as we get set to close out with our final state, if we didn't cover uh, the state of interest to you, and we didn't cover them all, but to, you've written about what was the number you said twenty three. I think different? we're going to have twenty three. I think there's twenty one up now. Or we might we, have a couple still. We've filtering got, in. We've got some stragglers. So if you don't see a state you're interested on there. Uh, so Stay go tuned. to the website, pheasantsforever.org, yep. and we've got – CARP has 23-plus states, um, state-by-state forecasts. Um, we're going to wrap up the podcast with a sponsor of our forecast uh, this year, the Kansas Department of uh, Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism, and give us the Kansas preview for the pheasant hunting season. Uh, late spring blizzard again is what a what a mantra we have going. But once again, hatch makes up for a lot of that, and so does habitat. And Kansas has good habitat. They're also far enough south on the plains that the bulk of winter doesn't hit them so hard. Uh, the prediction out of Kansas is that hunting is going to be fair to locally good is sort of the, the words we, we talked about uh, when I talked to the folks in Kansas. And that means similar to some of the other states we talked about, a little boot leather on the ground, a little gas in the tank, and you're going to be able to find birds down there. Um, last year, pheasant 
Kansas reported the second highest pheasant harvest in the country. Hmm. Uh, so think about that amongst all the states we yeah, were talking about. They tend to, typically number two pheasant harvest state, and it hasn't been like that the last couple of years, but it was last year, and yeah. typically the number two quail harvest state. Yeah. Although uh, they were number one last year. Were they higher than Texas last year? I believe so. Oh, wow. Don't quote me on that. I'll, I'll go to my, <laughs> yeah, you I'll go gonna, to my Google, you gonna, Google machine here. You guys keep talking. But if you, if you think about that, you know, top three for pheasants and quail, um, that's a pretty impressive mixed bag opportunity in the state of Kansas. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Kansas is you coined the term on the rooster road trip a couple years ago, Jared. Give it to us. What's that? Uh, weehaw. You set me up for it. Oh, yeah. Weehaw. You know, yeehaw for weehaw. Oh, that's, <laughs> I almost <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah, those weehaw property. I mean, just like Nebraska, Kansas just has a phenomenal walk-in program. I mean, I think – what what do they have for acreage? They're over a million. In Nebraska? Or in uh, Kansas. I, I think mean. Kansas is 1.2 million. Yeah, I mean, they just got an incredible walk-in program with a lot of opportunities for folks. And uh, I know there's a, there's a number of us here, whether through Rooster Road Trip or, or just on our own – own personal trips uh, like to go down there and and but but ju- just pheasant and quail alone not even talking some of those other species that they have yeah. out there pheasant and quail alone have just been phenomenal uh in the places that i've hunted the past few years and hopefully that hopefully that rings true uh for 2018 2019 season when i was down there chasing prairie chickens a, a couple weeks ago we hunted all weeha and you could hunt a lifetime just in the mm. couple of counties we were in and not cover it all and it was big rangeland, good nice grass, rotationally grazed. I mean, it was not just crop fields mm-hmm. harvested. It was nice cover, and you couldn't hunt it all in a lifetime. Late season opportunities there too are yes. like something Th- that a lot of people m- can miss out on. There's a few things that uh, that make Kansas pretty appealing. By the way, I I for I should go back and ch- I. I'm like the um, the resident fact checker here, so I'm finally putting that journalism degree to good use. But they they were they were um, the highest recorded quail harvest in the country, just above Texas last year. So they probably they'll be duking it out for that top spot again. But you know, a quail is a limit. Is that what it is in yes. Kansas? And four and, roosters. And four roosters, which is um, the highest, the, the highest yep. in the country. You know, which get, gets. I mean. Um, you know, most people I know aren't like bag crazy, but if your dogs are still, if your dogs are still cooking and, uh, well, Jared's pointing at himself. <laughs> Jared's still in that, uh, I can be a meat hunter once I, in a while. I'm in the method stage of hunting and, <laughs> and Jared is still in the, in the bag stage. That's fine. We can, we can be different, but you know, that, that you go down there and that, that can keep you in the field all day. Yeah. Um, you know, which is, is, is unique. I mean, you t- we talked about a lot of states as pheasants is kind of the main course, but, um, and we'll, we'll, and we'll give quail it to do, but you know, Kansas, a one, two punch of quail. We talked about quail in Nebraska as a draw, particularly in the Southern tier, Southwest mixed bag, Southern Iowa, their pheasants are up quails the highest in a generation. Um, and then, you, you know, you, we taught, we started with Montana going all the way back and, um, you know, pheasants, but there's also sharp tails and huns to go. So some of these plays, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of the one, you know, I just look at my own state. We all look through our own lens. I love pheasant hunting in Minnesota, but it's kind of, there's, it, it's roosters or bust. 
you know, and, and those mixed bags can kind of be a lure. But I don't think we'll be complaining a whole lot when, when we're doing it. But as you daydream here, yeah. that, that's what you think yeah. about. You know, and so we followed um, kind of the opening days is how we yeah. led through yep. this, right? And I was thinking, you know, the earlier seasons, those northern states, you're busting a lot of cattails. It's really hard, you know, heavy cover. And then towards the end, the Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, you know, it's a um, big prairie. Um, on yep. some wheat stubble, you know, yep. if you think about the differences in tactics from, you know, north to south, east to west, um, you know, it's a pretty diverse uh, a variety. variety. You know, if you're going to hunt pheasants in Montana versus Kansas versus North Dakota, you're going to have to adapt a fair amount uh, as the season goes on. But the good news is it's a pretty good forecast. There's there's birds to be had no matter what state you pick. Um, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, old adage, but there's truth in it. Lace up those boots, get behind a good bird dog and yep. you never know what's going to happen. Yep. So uh, any, any closing thoughts at, uh, on, on the 2018 pheasants forever pheasant hunting forecast, we'll start with, uh, Jared, any, any, uh, words of wisdom for our pheasants forever members and listeners out there? <laughs> well, I, I'm excited for it. Um, I mean, I, I, Lost one dog, still got a dog at home. It looks like we might be getting a puppy around Christmas this year. So I'm excited for that and try to try to get that dog out on some type of hunt before the end of the season. But um, there's a lot of different opportunities this year. And, uh, you know, I think for folks, too, that might be listening to the podcast that, that might be new to hunting or maybe getting back into it after a couple of years, don't don't be shy about calling our office. We, we, we speak with a lot of folks to try to point them in the right direction. And I think that's part of the whole retain recruit reactivate is is to help people find some success uh, with upland birds because it, it can be daunting at times but i don't think it has to be so um use uh use this podcast as as kind of a, a guide to your upland hunting season this year and uh let us know if you have any questions and thanks everybody for for all the work you're doing as as pheasants forever and quill forever members out there in the landscape to make more opportunities for folks and good luck this year and I'll turn to uh, the Pheasants Forever editor. Any final words, Mr. Carpenter? Well, I'm pretty excited. I mean, everybody around here knows I get pretty excited about all this stuff anyway. Um, but I'm especially excited this year as being the new editor at Pheasants Forever. I'm going to go on some hunting trips with chapters and places and see this habitat work that is the core of who we are, what, these, what our chapters are doing out on the ground. And it's, it's hard to contain my excitement for, for getting out to, to do that, not only to, to hunt with them, but also to report back and uh, to learn about what they've done and how proud they are of this habitat and, and what it's doing for not only for pheasants and quail, but pollinators and all the other wildlife out there. So that's one aspect. I think the second is, um, you know, we talked about different levels of, uh, you know, the stages of a sportsman, harvest versus participation versus method. And, and I think I'm, I'm, uh, you go back and forth in your career and you go back and forth as to the different types of hunting. And I'm just, I'm in sort of a participation mode for this fall. I just want to hunt a lot with 
these doggies I have what maybe my last year with Rascal, the gallant old Brittany, and with a five with a five month old Epignol Breton puppy who's showing some promise. Uh, I just want to get out and do it, and, and that sort of ties back to what Jared said. It can be it can be daunting to think about where am I going to hunt. I I've always wanted to try and go somewhere, but I can't do it. I don't know where to go. Well, we've talked about a lot of these open lands, a lot of these public lands. All you have to do is just get out and do it. Don't wait. Don't wait. Do it now with your dog. I mean, I did it with a five-month-old puppy. I went to Kansas. I didn't know what the heck was going on, and we got a pra- one prairie chicken, and it's it'll keep me going for months. And you can do that with your dog getting to a new place. One of these states we talked about, just get out and do it. Load up the truck and go. You want to drop any final Wikipedia nuggets on us, Anthony? <laughs> no, no. There's, uh, you, guys can do that. Man. you guys can do that yourself from now on. You guys all have your phones You're the there. only one with a phone. Yeah, I had it out. No, I, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm uh, as usual, I get more excited for each season. You know, it kind of, it becomes more a part of you than it did the last, which, uh, you know, I've I've kind of mortgaged my future and bought a couple new shotguns. Uh, I have a couple. I, I knew of one. Well, I, one one's new. One, one's, Kaylee's not listening, is she? One's new, brand new. One's new to me. I bought it used. Oh, I didn't know about but that. But it's one. like new. Uh, and and I've got two. You know, just selfishly, it's like I've got I've got two dogs that are uh, seven and three, which you know, one kind of in the middle of her prime, and the other one should be maybe still a year away, but getting close enough to have good, good hunts. So it's, it's hard not to be excited and you cross your fingers and just hope that there's there, that there's no injuries. Um, you know, I was up in North Dakota this past weekend and it was like the res, I think it was the resident duck opener there. And I I didn't see anyone duck hunting, (laughs) you know, like not one, I mean, and it's not like I was just, you know, in one, in one like small circle, I was hunting grouse. And so I'm, and, and, and I, I, I spent large parts of the day driving around and scouting and looking for new areas to hunt. And I, and I didn't see anyone else duck hunting. And, you know, we talked about just this special report coming up. And I mean, you know, it's hard not, it's hard not to be selfish at times. It's like, phew, I got all this place to myself and I enjoy the solitude, but at the same time, it's like, it, it just, it's kind of like what, what we've been talking about. So I, I guess, um, you know, some of those hunter numbers and trends and it's like, uh, I, I, I juxtapose that, you know, I, I, I'm looking at places and it's like duck opener in like the top duck producing state in the country. And I don't see anyone hunting. And then I do, you know, I do know people that, you know, have given up, um, you know, we meet them at events. There's no pheasants here. There's no pheasants there. There's no birds left. And it's like, then I know guys that, you know, this isn't, this isn't, to um, you know, just brag them up as hunters. It's just a fact they shoot 80 or a hundred pheasants in a year. I mean, it's what they do. I mean, success is out there. It's just how bad do you want it? I mean, we've kind of joked about the boot leather thing, but, um, that, that's really the key ingredient is how, how bad do you want to get after it? And Jared, Jared is pretty, it makes a salient point. It's about being helpful. And, you know, we talk about this, uh, quite a bit, like, would you give up a honey hole? I don't know that I'd give up all of mine, but I'll give up some. You should. I mean, it's, it's be friendly, uh, introduce, uh, introduce maybe if you're not going to take somebody hunting, give up a spot. That's what I'd say, you know, share not give it up, but share a spot, share a spot, get, get somebody else out there. It's, uh, 
it probably hasn't been until this year that I've been like started to get really concerned about those hunter numbers and you look ahead and it's like maybe it's because you reach that point I see a little more gray in my beard (laughs) I got to stare at myself every day (laughs) and uh and you start looking ahead like what's what's the world going to be like in in 20 years or 30 years and you know I really I really love this stuff I I love everything that that uh surrounds upland hunting and i want to mortgage my future again next year and buy two more guns so, <laughs> um, you know and, and and we you know no that's that's just a joke but yeah i think i think that is important i'm finally even though i've been immersed in this stuff for a while for finally starting to kind of see clearly like oh boy that's that's maybe not just uh that's not just like saber rattling for the for the you know the sake of just the boogeyman it's like it's a pretty legitimate concern and then when you see it with your own eyes mm-hmm. it uh it starts to become a little more crystal clear good point robert well you know um, i'm thinking about over the years we've done a lot of surveys and focus groups of people that are in the upland world and asked them why why aren't you members of pheasants forever and the, the number one answer that comes back is nobody's asked me well, folks, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, consider this your invitation. We, uh, we need folks like you, um, men and women, young and old. Uh, we need you to join the ranks of the Habitat Organization. And one extremely fun way to do that is in conjunction with many of the states we talked about uh, in their opening days of pheasant hunting season, there is a whole bunch of banquets that occur across the country the night before the opener, the night of the opener. You go to pheasantsforever.org, click on the events tab. You'll see in South Dakota there is just a pile of chapter banquets, Pheasants Forever chapter banquets, the night before, the night of the opener. Same thing in Kansas, Colorado, Nebraska. Um, you know, and, and the people putting on these banquets are volunteers, they're doing, you know, they're they're doing these banquets and this habitat work under the banner of pheasants forever, or quail forever, because they care about the uplands that they put their own time, their own money, their own sweat. Come on out and join them. Go to go to one of these banquets. You'll become a member. You'll be doing uh, something darn good for the future of everything we care about, the uplands. Thank you for listening today. That's your 2018 Pheasants Forever pheasant hunting forecast. And you will hear the Quail Forever quail hunting forecast coming down the road in just a few weeks. Till then, I hope you're as excited as we all are. Make sure you get out there on the trap range. Shoot shoot straight. Get your license lined up. Figure out who you're going to take. Tighten up that bird dog. And we'll see you down the road.